Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Welcome to episode 39 of the Lovable Podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about the outdated mental rules and practical hurdles that get in the way of you discovering your passion, practicing it, and cultivating a sense of purpose in your life. By the end of this conversation, you will have greater clarity about what are the actual barriers that stand between you and your passions, and which ones are simply in your own head. Before we get going, though, I have a huge announcement. Everything we've been working through in this podcast, all of the written content that goes along with a year of listening, loving, and living, as well as an individual and group study guide, is going to be available to you for free by the third week of August. I've been working on this like crazy uh, for the last several months. Um, My 10-year-old did all the proofreading and making sure all the links are working, and it is going to be live for you soon. So make sure you're signed up for my mailing list so you'll be the first to find out how to get access to it with absolutely no strings attached. It's completely free. You can sign up for my mailing list by going to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. And sign up at the top of the right sidebar. You'll immediately get a free ebook entitled The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down. Uh, you'll also get a free sample of Lovable. And then each week you'll get one email on Wednesday mornings with a link to this podcast and to my every other week blog post. And last but not least, if you want more than a sample of Lovable and you don't have a copy of it yet, you can get it wherever books are sold. Um, You can go to lovablethebook.com. If you want to go to an online retailer, there will be ways to get it there. Um, Or you can just go straight to any online retailer, but even more importantly, get it at your local bookshop. If you have one, support your local bookseller. It's sold in paperback, digital, and audio. So check it out wherever you like to buy books. Um, All right, I think that's it. Onward. What if the mental rules that stop you from pursuing your passions are outdated or incorrect in the first place? And what if the practical hurdles to pursuing your passions aren't as hard to jump over as you think? What if you could begin pursuing your passions right now? Answers to all those questions and more in this week's episode. Thanks as always for listening in. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 38 of the Year of Listening, Loving, and Living, which is entitled, What if a resurrected life isn't as impossible as it seems? In recent weeks, we've been focused on turning our attention to our passions, the often neglected desires about what we want to do with our life and how we want to live it that have been hibernating somewhere in the depths of our true self. We've talked about giving ourselves permission to want those things again, and last week, we talked about how to focus our attention on them, in spite of the voice within us that says we we can't or we shouldn't or we don't know how to. Now today, we're going to examine another problem most of us face as we begin to entertain our passions once again, and that is the outdated and incorrect mental rules that keep you from living the kind of life that will bring you joy and a sense of purpose. Before we get into this week's topic, though, let's check in. 
This week we're going to be focused on all of the, the sort of practical objections that arise within us when we start thinking about pursuing our passions. I can't do that. I don't have time for it. There's not enough money. There's not enough space. Those sorts of things. In the last couple of weeks though, as I said, we were focused on the resistance stirred up by our shame. Specifically, last week we focused on taking a list of the things we wanted to do with our lives and listening to what the voice of shame had to say about those things. All of those messages of discouragement we sort of sense inside. Whether you've done that exercise or not, I'm curious. What inner objections have you noticed recently or in the past when you think about pursuing something that you are passionate about? And while you are thinking about what you kind of want to share as you're reflecting upon sort of those inner objections that arise within you, um, I did this exercise last week. um, And this is... The power of the voice of shame here is so intense that it's hard to not get emotional when I think about it. Um, But... I know that my passion is, um, well, I've clarified my passion over time. Um, I think when my ego gets involved, I think my passion is like writing a bestseller. Um, but I know that's not my true passion. That's my ambition. Um, and then I sort of settle into, well, one of my passions is writing. Um, and, but then I get a little bit more clarity about it. And I say, actually, one of my passion, my, 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 at the core of all of this is my passion for speaking to, to, to people in the, in the tender voice of a father. So that's a passion I can practice in my therapy practice. It's a passion I can practice at home with my kids. And it's a passion that I can practice in my writing. So I want to write in the tender voice of a father. That's one of my passions. Um, an image that constantly rises up when I think about that is it's, it's this image of my kids um, sort of in the, a little bit in the future talking to their friends. Their friends are saying, what does your dad do? Um, and they say, well, he, he's a therapist on Mondays and Tuesdays, and the rest of the week he sort of pretends that he's a writer. <laughs> um, and, and so it's like, it's like through this image, shame speaks through the mouth, mouth of my children, who I, whose respect I most desire, and says, you're just a pretender. You're just pretending. Um, and then what happens is shame says, but... Uh, you, you don't have to pretend. You can get super ambitious about this and throw all of your time and energy and attention into this writing passion of yours. Um, and <laughs> the irony being that in the end, I would neglect my children and they would resent me for neglecting them to pursue a passion that is, is, is being pursued with an ambition to impress them. And it becomes very convoluted. And this is sort of what I cycle through all the time as I think about this passion of mine. So um, it's, uh, it's something that I have to constantly be aware of. I have to be filtering out this sense of um, you're a pretender um, and, and substitute that with the voice of grace saying, no, 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 you're a writer, trust that. Um, and then I have to filter out the voice of shame saying, get more ambitious about it and say, no, no, I just wanna be passionate about it. I don't wanna be ambitious. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's sort of what starts to arise in me when I pay attention to how shame speaks into my passion and all of that. So um, I'm curious to hear um, from you about what shape, form, uh, likeness, uh, the the inner resistance, the inner shame, the inner objections take in you as you start to think about the things that you want to practice and being passionate about. Stephanie writes, I get super excited about my passions, then I feel like I completely sabotage it. I procrastinate because I feel the stress or shame and do other things, then beat myself up because I don't do it again. Ugh. 
And like you just said, I feel like I'm an imposter with my ambitions. Like, who am I to be a writer? Look at all those books out there. Who will want to read yours? Um, yeah, boy, Stephanie, um, it's, it's brave of you to, to voice those, but so helpful because um, it's exactly exactly the sort of resistance that arises in me. If it's arising in you too, <laughs> it's arising in a lot of people out there. Um, and, uh, you know, imposter syndrome, right? That is num one of the number one things that holds us back from pursuing our passions. And when it comes to imposter syndrome, I, I take a very different approach for myself and for my clients than I took many years ago. Um, I used to spend a lot of time trying to convince myself I wasn't an imposter um, and trying to convince my, you know, kind of reframing cognitions around that with clients. And these days I take a totally different approach and I say, of course you're an imposter. <laughs> Everybody is an imposter. Everybody's making it up as they go. I remember distinctly um, sitting in the dental chair one day uh, in the middle of a major procedure and sort of hearing the dialogue going on around me and going, they're making this up as they go. Um, they're... <laughs> this is a creative act and they're figuring it out as they go. And um, they're trying to project an image of professionalism and that they've got it all figured out. But even the most experienced professionals at some level are imposters. They're making it up as they go. So let's take that, let's take that in, right? That yes, we're all imposters in the sense that we're all making it up as we go. Um, and let's reframe it as that. Yeah, I'm making it up as I go. Um, we all are, nothing wrong with that. Um, let's just, uh, Let's just allow ourselves the grace of knowing that we are, we're all in that together. And Stephanie, I think the other thing that I would add is that, uh, um, you know, I think procrastination is the, it's the symptom of imposter syndrome. You know, I, I think anyone who feels like an imposter procrastinates um, because it's just a, it's a huge sense of vulnerability. So I, I, I believe that as we begin to address that imposter syndrome, then the procrastination starts to uh, to relinquish a little bit. Carrie Lynn writes, I love that you have sorted out passion and ambition, kind of like faith and works. One without the other is unproductive. Ah, but together, trace magnifique, they become a beautiful gift to our world. Um, Carrie Lynn, yeah, thanks for keying in on that piece of what I was saying. Um, I'll tell you, I, I gained a lot of clarity about that um, from listening to a specific, it was, it was a specific episode on Rob Bell's podcast, um, of all places, and uh, he talked, he was essentially talking about how um, on the sort of the, the journey of life, um, you have to have passion and ambition in the car together, but and I remember this very distinctly, he said, but ambition always needs to ride in the back seat, and it never gets to choose the music. <laughs> in other words, we, we need our ambition. Um, we need a little bit of, um, if I go back to what Stephanie was saying, it's okay to want people to, to want to read your content once you've written it. Um, in fact, Seth Godin says it's not art unless you show it to people, <laughs> which I think is a very provocative and helpful idea, um, that whatever you've created becomes art once you show it to people. Um, and once you've shown it to people, it's natural to want them to like it. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, that's not a bad ambition. Um, but when ambition is sort of in the driver's seat, and passion is in the back seat. Now things have sort of, sort of gotten out of whack. So yes, may they may they ride together in their proper places and uh, some really cool things can happen. Julia writes, I love the idea that our passions don't need to be some huge ambitious endeavor and we just need to live them out big or small. I tend to be grandiose in my thinking, so this idea is the voice of grace for me. 
Um, Julia, thank you for that too. Um, I there's a there's a a chapter in Lovable, um, and I can't remember the exact title of it off the top of my head, but it's like sort of like the one the one thing that will kill any passion, and it's this it's this sense that the passion has to matter, that it has to make a difference, that it has to be recognized and rewarded, and um, it, that will stop a passion from from you know, from getting off the ground. Uh, it'll just cut it off at the knees right from the very beginning. Um, and so, yeah, we have to be able to say, you know what? Um, passions are ordinary things. And that's another thing, right? I think when we think of passion, we think it's this sort of extraordinary, exceptional thing. And it's like, nope, passion is absolutely ordinary. Every human being has passions drifting up from that holy place within them, as Frederick Buechner says. And, uh, and so we're here to just listen to our what's drifting up and, and to respond to it and to practice it. And where that ends up, um, that is, that's um, relatively inconsequential. Um, it's the practicing of it that's important. Donna writes, good morning. In the midst of the building of my passion, I'm recognizing shame in the form of, do I really deserve this? Or are some people going to be jealous? It's a challenge to sort through. My resolve is daily just to be grateful and remember with confidence that all good things come from the Father. Any shame or embarrassment is not from Him, but dang those other voices. Well, amen to that, Donna. Um, and I want to return to the two things that you you noted, the two shame, kind of the two sentences that the voice of shame brings to you. Do I really deserve this? Uh, number two, are some people going to be jealous? Um, and what you're pointing out in... in I want to go back to the structure of lovable into the year, this year of listening, loving, and living, that this structure, this progression is there for a reason. Embracing our worthiness, cultivating belonging, pursuing our passion. Because what you're pointing out beautifully is that when we start um, believing in ourselves enough to pursue our passion, our sense of shame and our questioning our worthiness uh, gets stirred up all over again. And questions about our belonging get stirred up all over again, right? Because your first the first thing the voice of shame is saying is essentially you don't you don't really you're not really worthy of such a good thing, right? So if we can respond as we're pursuing our passion, it's it's a chance to work through our sense of worthiness all over again, embrace our true self um, even more comprehensively, and to come out the other side going, I am worthy of good things. Like the good news, the good news about the way we are built is so good that that the thing you want to do, the thing you're here to do, is also the thing you love to do. Like, that requires some faith at first, um, but then if we trust that long enough to pursue it in that way, um, experience begins to validate that. So yes, you are worthy of this. You are worthy of good things that you enjoy. Um, but we have to work through that all over again as we go, as we begin to venture into our passions. And then the other thing, right, is... Um, as I pursue this passion and as this thing grows or this thing happens for me, um, will my people still embrace me? Will they get jealous? Will my success be um, something they can't handle? And this is how pursuing our passion continues to clarify our circles of belonging. You know, our circles of belonging will be, remain populated by the people who are happy for us, who are thrilled for us, who celebrate our successes, and we'll do the same for them. Um, and, and so again, this is an iterative process, right? We're walking into our passions, starts to clarify our sense of worthiness even more and clarify our places of belonging. So thank you so much for articulating that. 
um, because we need to we need to be reminded over and over again that this is not just a linear worthiness belonging purpose we're done it's very much circular deb f writes wow what a beautiful release owning the imposter bit kind of like faking it till you make it between that and the statement your passion doesn't have to be great it just has to be lived i may actually be able to pull off finishing my book laugh out loud <laughs> um, that would be uh, we'd all be blessed by that if you were able to do that, Deb, um, just to, to know that um, that things are shifting, continuing to shift within you. We'd celebrate that with you. Um, you have a place of belonging here in that. Um, yeah, faking it till you make it. Um, and uh, increasingly feeling enough confidence in that reality that we're all sort of imposters that you don't even sometimes need to fake it anymore, <laughs> you know, um, that you can kind of say, yeah, I'm, 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 sort of making this up as I go, but increasingly I'm trusting my instincts, I'm trusting my passions, I'm following where they lead, and we'll see what happens. Um, so uh, <laughs> fake it till you make it, live it until it's fully lived, and regardless of whether you make it, maybe is, is a, a way to combine those two for you, Deb. Brenda writes, late again, really glad you record this. Also excited about the lovable experience. I always thought I would know who I am, what my passions were, my new work after raising children, but I don't. Brenda, um, thank you as always for your vulnerability. We'll take you when we can get you, <laughs> better late than never. And uh, one of the things that I want to encourage you is that you just said something that a lot, a lot of parents need to hear. Um, it is really rare to be able to pour your, your sort of your entire being into raising other human beings to be connected with their passions and to still stay completely connected to your own. Um, and so sometimes, you know, we talk about the empty nest thing and ways that that can be sort of disconcerting. And one of them is who am I? Um, and, and sometimes not who am I, am I good enough, but who am I, what am I up to now? What do I do? Um, how do I rediscover those passions? So, um, for those of us who are starting to raise and launch children, these questions are going to become more and more important as we go. Robin writes, I've shared that I grew up in a pretty dysfunctional home. It has left me with a deep sense of unworthiness. I have worked so hard in therapy to change this, but 10 years in, I just acknowledge that it's there. Mm. Yep, that it's there and tell the voice to shut up. The voice is there, but I choose not to listen anymore. You know, Robin, thanks for articulating that too. Um, because as we begin to, to step into to following our passions, I think a lot of us are surprised that like we thought we we thought that we left that voice behind. In fact, we started to get started with our passions because we felt worthy of them. <laughs> and then all of a sudden that voice of shame kicks in again and we go, oh my gosh, do I have any business pursuing this passion? Maybe I need to go all the way back and just start over and try to love myself again. And um, you're articulating something that is so true and it's something in the last letter I write in Lovable to my kids. Um, I write that, you know, I thought it, when I started the book, I thought it was a book about banishing our shame, eliminating it, getting rid of it. Um, and that really life is about learning how to live with it, um, what to do with it when it returns, noticing it when it's triggered, getting better and better at listening for the other voice that is whispering always right underneath it, the voice of grace. So yes, thank you for that reminder um, that we don't, um, we don't live beyond our shame, we live with our shame, and, uh, and, but that's the, that's the thing, we live with it. We don't, we don't hesitate to live because of it. We live with it. Um, and that is the brave thing to do. Um, and it is really the only option we have. So thank you for that. 
Marie writes, I appreciate the perspective that this is a creative act and that we're all figuring it out as we go. I've been hearing the voice of shame loud and clear, so hearing the voice of grace is still a work in progress, but giving myself freedom to figure it out as I go releases me to take one step at a time. Sing some or sing a lot and allow it to take me where it's going, instead of allowing my ambition to use singing to serve in church drive my ambition, I'm sorry, yes, allowing my ambition to use singing to serve in church drive the process, right? Freedom to figure it out as I go brings me back to the present, actually. Yeah, and that's a, it's probably one of the best sort of disguises of ambition um, to use your passion only in the service of others. Because um, we, get, we, we get worried, there's another one, you're being selfish, Right? Shame chimes in. You're being selfish by focusing on something that you love so much. You better at least use it to serve others. Um, you might may find that you get more joy um, from your passion for singing, more clarity about the direction you want to go with it by singing in the shower than you get from singing in front of people um, because there's a purity of passion in that moment. And it's not sort of being influenced by ambition or kind of a, a, the, that subtle sense of shame that I need to be using it for, for somebody. Carrie Lynn writes, inconsequential where it ends up. Love this, a very empowering statement, a true statement of freedom. Um, you know, I wrote a, blog, wrote a blog post, I think it was last fall. Uh, the metaphor was going on a bike ride and on, on a dark morning. And uh, initially thinking of the, this metaphor was starting to come to me that, and thinking that this path was my passion right? And that I needed to um, follow the path of my passion. And then over the course of the bike ride, realized that actually the light on the front of my bike is my passion and it lights the path of my life a few steps ahead. Um, but doesn't give me much clarity about what, what is beyond that. <laughs> um, and I think when we're always thinking about where this ends up, um, we, we never get started. And if we, if we don't know where a path ends, we may be hesitant to start it. But if we can just trust that this passion of mine will light the next few steps, the next few pedals, um, then, then we have just enough light to move forward. Stephanie writes, I know that fake it stage. I have to keep repeating, just start, have courage. Then the make it part usually follows, which is the confidence part, especially when someone else affirms it. Exactly. It feels so good, this affirmation, like I'm living on purpose. I rejoice and feel empowered to do more of that. Again, the order of things, right? Belonging and then purpose. We need cheerleaders when we're like stepping out and doing courageous things and things that like maybe a lot of people in the world say like, why are you doing that? How's that lead to success? Um, we need our cheerleaders. We need the people in our corner going, that's you. Keep doing that thing. Um, I love to see you stepping out. Um, and so absolutely, let's enjoy those moments. Deb F writes, I know I'm stating the obvious here, but it's amazing to me how far down the road we all get without thoughts of shame when in many instances we haven't even cracked the surface of beginning. That is one of the gifts I receive here, seeing firsthand how I'll speak for myself, talk myself out of something before I even begin. That is um, a fantastic segue, <laughs> Deb, into this week's reading. Um, and, uh, and so I think we'll use that as a segue to get into this week's content and, uh, and then essentially just continue the conversation from there on the other side. Um, let me read what you said again. Um, that um, one of the gifts of coming here is seeing firsthand how, um, and you'll speak for yourself, but I'm gonna speak for everybody today, how we often talk ourselves out of something before we even begin. Stephanie, I think you are the one who mentioned imposter syndrome for the first time. This is one of the things I've come to love about these, these discussions here on Facebook Live, is I never know where the discussion will lead. 
Um, and today, Stephanie, you had the courage to step out and talk about your imposter experience and it resonated with everybody and the conversation sort of began to orbit around that. Um, and we all needed that and there's gonna be a lot of listeners, listeners who needed that. So thank you for having the courage to step out. Um, we're all with you. <laughs> Um, I'm going to transition now to the reading and then we'll continue, truly just continue because it's, I hope the reading is just taking this a step further. All right, so this, uh, this week's reading is entitled Week 38, What if a Resurrected Life Isn't as Impossible as It May Seem? On a Saturday afternoon, my wife was in a car accident. After the police and paramedics and tow trucks, we returned home and I left messages with all the appropriate agencies. I went to work on Monday morning, and by the time I arrived home Monday night, I had five voicemails on my home phone from various agents saying that they would try to reach me again the next day. The same thing happened on Tuesday, and I wondered how I would ever connect with these people while I was at work. Frustrated, I decided to change the outgoing message on the home phone, instructing the agents to call my cell phone. So I opened the voicemail setting on the iPhone that had served as our home phone for about six months, and I went about recording a new message. On an iPhone. Momentary confusion. My home phone is an iPhone, dawning awareness. It's an iPhone, and it isn't attached to a wall or a base station. It can go literally anywhere, giddy wonder. My home phone can go to work with me, exultation. Sometimes the simplest, most elegant, most life-changing solutions are right in front of our noses, but we can't see them because we are locked into old schemas. A schema is a mental framework that helps organize and interpret information in the world around us. Schemas are the lens through which we see everything, and they are necessary and good. They allow us to make quick calculations, to get to certain conclusions, without doing the same mental work every time. A strange man leaning out of his car window offering a little girl a candy bar is a schema. Schemas are essential when we need to act quickly and decisively. But schemas can also be a problem because sometimes they're outdated. Like home phones are attached to a wall and must stay at home. That schema. It's a stored set of rules that no longer applies. Or worse, some of our schemas were never correct in the first place. For instance, skinny is beautiful. To be lovable, I have to keep everyone perfectly satisfied with me. Success is defined by the size of my bank account. I'm a good parent if my kids are happy. Other people get to decide my worth. Rainy days are bad days. And the biggest problem with schemas is they are powerful. So if they're outdated or if, you were, if they were never correct in the first place, they actually keep us disconnected from reality. They limit our freedom and undermine our creativity. When we sense something more in ourselves and we yearn for a life to be bigger, schemas are like shackles on our hearts. They are like non-existent phone cords tethering us to imaginary walls. These months of living can be life-changing for us. Because during these months, we might all look in the mirror and stop seeing ourselves as old rotary dial phones tethered to outdated or false ways of seeing ourselves and the world around us. And the secret to making this quantum leap might lie in two little words and one little question. What if? What if, instead of staring at the numbers on the scale, we tossed the thing in the garbage and threw away our self-loathing with it? What if we can't be everything to everyone and that is still good enough? What if it isn't our job to keep everyone around us happy? What if we really are free to choose a family rather than remaining bound to a biological family that wounds us every time? What if we don't have to remain even one more day in an abusive relationship? What if some rules really were made to be broken? What if we don't have to stay in a career we've loathed for a decade? What if we, what if we canceled our cable subscription and used the free time to live something we believe in? Several years ago, I began to discover the power of this question when I asked a few what-if questions of my own. 
What if I started a blog, even though I've never written a word? What if therapists don't have to be as opaque and hidden as I've always been told? What if I transformed a bunch of blog posts into an ebook about marriage? What if I began to work on a full-length book? What if? And here we are. You're reading the companion to my first full-length book. But it hasn't been easy. In fact, at times, it's been excruciating. Blowing up schemas is scary. There's all sorts of learning to do and almost no guarantees anything will work out the way we want it to. But that may bring us to the most important what if of all. What if our plans working out isn't nearly as important as our hearts coming out? What if truly living is always a little terrifying? C.S. Lewis wrote, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What if we quit settling for making better mud pies in the slum? What if we began to receive the infinite joy always being offered to us? What if we decided to set out for a holiday at the sea? What if we started to ask ourselves, what if? Maybe, just maybe, we'd cease to be half-hearted creatures who are far too easily pleased. Maybe we'd become whole-hearted creatures, untethered from the walls of our lives, living with freedom in the world according to the desires planted by love in our heart of hearts. What if? So as I read that today, um, I'm reading that today within a context for me that I've never read it in before. Um, I certainly didn't write it within, but I'm currently reading a book called The Soul of Money. Um, and in the book, one of the, the primary things the author asks you to do is to define your life sentence. D- you know, say your life sentence. What is, the, what is the sentence about your relationship to money that dictates the way that you live? Um, and so uh, I, I discovered as I was sorting through this, um, for what it's worth, um, that my life sentence about money is someday, if you have an extraordinary amount of money, you'll be able to live an ordinary life. You know, in other words, like you need a lot of margin to slow down, quit working so hard, get your ambition in check and just live the life that you want. <laughs> it's irrational. It actually doesn't make any sense. The way to live an ordinary life is to quit ex- pursuing an extraordinary one. <laughs> but my life sentence about money is telling me to do the opposite. It was a life, a life schema, um, a life sentence that was dictating everything that I did. Um, and one that I want to be aware of and begin to, to turn the tide on. So maybe one of the things that we can think about as we sort of digest this reading is what is your life sentence about your passions? Um, what is your life sentence that may be prohibiting you from pursuing your passions? Um, what are the things that sort of rise up in you, the objections that, um, that may be outdated, may have been incorrect in the first place? Um, and, uh, and may need to be questioned, like sort of this kind of dawning awareness that, oh, wait a second, um, home phones are no longer always tethered <laughs> to the wall in my house. Um, what are, the, what are the, the, the sorts of ideas and schemas we can start questioning? Robin writes, powerful stuff. And Jackie writes, ugh, so good. <laughs> so yeah, I'd certainly be curious to hear more about um, what is it from that reading that resonated with you the most, even if it's not... Um, an immediate awareness of a particular life sentence, just perhaps what is it that sort of jumps out at you about that reading that you know you'll be noodling on a little bit more? And, and by the way, um, <laughs> you know, uh, the the blog post that I shared today, where I, I sort of shared 
the stab I've taken at an introduction of a book that I'm writing with my oldest, um, the, the plan is to, to write a book together about his high school years over the course of his high school years. So it'll take four years to write. Um, that, that doesn't make any sense. That, to, to, to get to that idea required a bunch of what ifs, right? Like it makes no sense. Uh, four years, what are the chances that you're going to finish it? What are the chances you two are even talking to each other at the end of the four years? I mean, um, or at least kindly enough to write a book together. Um, but what if? What if we just tried it? What if I didn't need to know where this path ended? What if I said, you know what? My passion is for paying attention to my son, and what a great way to do that. Um, and my passion is for writing. Wouldn't it be beautiful if if the good news is so good that I get to do both of those things at once? Um, and he's a beautiful writer, and I'd love to see him discover his, um, his joy in that. So uh, what if? Let's just give it a go. Breaks all the rules. Let's do it. Robin writes, as I look at another busy school year with work, grad school, raising teens, maintaining relationships, it can be overwhelming. How can I possibly be enough? But what if I am enough? What if getting dinner on the table is sometimes picking up takeout? You got it. What if there's enough time for everything that matters? That's it. Okay. So life sentence. Um, I, uh, I'm only a good enough mom if I do it all and get a uh, home cooked dinner on the table. What? <laughs> uh, why? What if that's not true? Um, what if you being able to be present and re relatively relaxed, um, what if that's more important than also having a home-cooked meal on a particular night? What if, what if the drive-thru bought, bought you your night back, right? Um, that would be the best spent um, fast food you ever, you ever bought. Absolutely. What if? Stephanie writes, whoa, the perspective of changing the self-limiting beliefs of what if to the alternative joy-seeking what if. You got it. Um, that's a life that's life changing. I also catch myself when I want to do something and get, yeah, but all the shame comes up. Now I try to say yes and all the good stuff that can be. Boy, that is, is so well said because um, in a way, what you're saying, Stephanie, is that we are taking that question what if back from our shame. Because yeah, the maybe the natural tendency is to say, well, what if this bad, what if it doesn't work out? What if this bad thing happens? What if you waste all this time writing this book with your son and it doesn't go anywhere? What if, uh, what if, what if? Um, and yeah, we're taking it back and saying, but what if, <laughs> what if none of that mattered? Um, what if all of those what ifs I just thought of are a total smokescreen, a total prison I'm living in? And what if I just stepped out of them? and didn't listen to them anymore. Maybe that's the first what if. What if I just took the question back from shame and said, what if I didn't listen to you? What if I move forward? Jackie writes, I'm a 32-year-old female who started a solo private practice because I knew I couldn't maintain self-care in an agency setting. I was so scared of failure and judgment when I started my own practice. I asked, what if I succeed? <laughs> so good. I'm so glad I did. Two years later and I have a full practice. Um, and for those of you who aren't in the field, you don't know how much courage that took for Jackie. Um, I probably first had the thought of starting my own uh, solo practice at uh, age 32. It took me till age 38 to get up the courage to do it. So Jackie, that is admirable. And I love the fact that it started with that, that question of what if I succeed? Um, and sure enough, here you are. And Jackie goes on, I resonate with feeling like, what if I am failing as sister because I've had to set boundaries and create distance to care for myself? Yep. Um, there's a beautiful tension in that statement um, because it acknowledges 
that setting boundaries and self-care is good, but what if that means that I fail as a sister? Um, and I think then you have to ask the question, what's my life sentence about failing? Um, because the, the life sentence that might be inherent in that is um, to succeed is to have other people happy with you um, and to be intimately connected with them, even at the cost of your own boundaries and self-care. Um, and instead to say, um, to reframe that, what if that is not the definition of success in relationship? What if to fail is actually to bury my true self, hide my true self, not have a voice, just, just to maintain sort of a counterfeit closeness in this relationship? What if, what if failing <laughs> is actually doing all of that and succeeding is showing up and letting people decide whether or not they want to be in relationship with me? So yeah, there's a lot of potential schemas that could be going on in that. And um, it's a, there's a tension in that that is, to me, really compelling and I know will grow you, um, Jackie. So, uh, and you've already, you've already proven you've got the courage to grow. Okay, so let's, let's take this idea of, of schemas and life sentences and, and challenging certain beliefs and ways of seeing the world. Let's take that to a really practical level right now. And this week we're going to do something. We're, going to, we're actually going to call upon our people to help us sort through, like, what are the realistic hurdles I face? You know, what are the real, you know, um, the real pitfalls in pursuing my passion? And what are just sort of the pitfalls or the hurdles that are in my own head? Like, sometimes it's really, you're so, we're so embedded within our schemas for a lifetime. We need someone else looking at them from the outside to say, actually, I don't think that that's accurate. <laughs> um, I think that one is just coming from your fear and shame. Now, that one is real, and we're going to have to figure out how to help you through that, right? And so, again, there's a reason that this purpose section, this, this purpose task, this pursuing our passions, uh, comes after the formation of our belonging, because we need to go back to the people we belong to and say, what do you think about this? I really want to do this thing, but... I don't see any way I can do it with this and this and this going on and, and these abilities that I have or don't have. And we rely upon them to give us an objective assessment of our schemas. Um, so here, this is week 38 practice. Over the last couple of weeks, we've begun to cultivate an awareness of the unlived lives we want, we want to finally live. Undoubtedly, over these weeks, in addition to the resistance stirred up by your shame, you've experienced resistance of another kind as well. It is likely that a number of practical objections have arisen in your mind over and over again. For instance, I can't do that because I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough talent. I have too many obligations. My husband wouldn't approve of it. My family wouldn't be okay with it. Maybe when the kids are older. <laughs> These thoughts tether you to old walls, like an invisible phone cord. And you need new thoughts, new and creative ways of solving old problems, or new ways of seeing old problems that may not even really exist. It is hard to do this from within our own perspective. We need an extra set of eyes. So this week, your people will be those extra eyes. This week, pick one or more of your people or go to your group of belonging. And if you haven't already done so, tell them what you've been up to. Show them your Christmas list. Explain how you've been listening for the voice of grace, giving you permission to want these things once again. Then tell them about the practical ob objections that have arisen within you. Tell them about the phone cords in your life. Read the post above to them and explain that you are trying to see these chords in new ways. Then, with your people, separate your practical objections into two categories. Old ways of thinking about problems that don't really exist anymore. And two, actual chords requiring creative solutions. 
I think you'll be pleasantly surprised to discover how many of your old ways of thinking are just that, old and thoughts. They aren't the present reality. You might even discover that you have a mobile phone kind of life in which you are more free and untethered than you've ever realized. Sure, you have obligations. Your family needs to eat and the bills need to get paid, but your range is a lot greater than you think it is. Ask your people to hold you accountable to living according to this reality. It's time to stop settling for mud pies in the slums. It's time to set out for a holiday at sea. So this is, uh, again, it's building on the months of loving. It's, uh, it's, it's why our people are so critical as we venture into this sort of uncertain territory of our passions. Um, and so um, one of the things, one of the questions that arises in me as I read that is, well, what do you mean by our people? Um, uh, well, uh, if there's a group of people um, that you've come to trust, um, where you could get more perspectives than one, that would be great. If you could think of one friend who would hear you sort of reading through this post and totally get it, and totally, like, sort of go like, oh, I totally get why you're wrestling through this right now, and I want to help you through it. Um, if you could think of one friend, confidant, mentor, spouse, partner, whatever, um, who would also be challenged by this, like you could sort of do it together, that would be awesome. Um, and then, of course, uh, if, if, if no one like that comes to mind at this point, you know, uh, a counselor, a therapist, someone in a more professional role uh, who would be more than happy to do that with you. It's what we love to do. So those are some of the, the thoughts that come to mind when I think about the people we belong to. So as you think about this practice, um, thoughts, reactions, um, additional reactions to the reading, uh, let's hear what you have to say. Carrie Lynn writes, I am hospice CNA on camera every day at work. Different angles, all of me, all of my actions, all of my words. I decided to just make peace with the insecurities I had about having all I do and say viewed and recorded, exclamation points. I have access to the video feed too. I have gone back and looked at some of the video, times that were difficult to manage my patient to see how I could improve. Guess what? What I discovered was that I was good enough. I wish we all had a video to see us at our best and worst. I think we would be surprised that we did better than we thought we did. We are always just putting one foot in front of the other, making the best of it. That is one of the, that's just a, such valuable encouragement for all of us, Carrie Lynn. Um, I remember, I remember a specific one like personal experience of that that stands out is the, the day that my daughter and I were on the Today Show and, you know, I got off set and I was like, I can't even remember what I said. How did I, how did I do? We went back to the hotel, they'd already uploaded the video and, uh, and I watched it and I was like, huh. I sort of sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I, I think that is the beauty of it, is that if we, if we can watch a recording of ourselves, um, we can, can sort of get a more objective perspective and go, all right, okay. Um, I, I look what I know, I look, I look like I know what I'm talking about from the outside, even though inside I sometimes feel like an imposter. Um, and that, can, that reality can begin to work its way into us. So thank you for that reminder, it's so good. Emily writes, I think so many of my life schemas are based in fear. The what if question takes the power of fear and puts it out there for me to observe instead of feeling it. Hmm, I like that a lot. Emily, that concept had never occurred to me. If you go back to the months of listening, you know, one of the, one of the core practices in that, that time of, of listening to ourselves and going on that inward journey was the concept of instead of getting swept away in the river of our thoughts and feelings, um, was learning to sort of step out of the river and observe our thoughts and feelings. It's not that they stop. It's not that our fears go away 
but we learn sort of a more mindful, thoughtful way of engaging with them. And I think what you're saying is that this what if question helps you to do that with your fears. Um, helps you to kind of step back, take a more objective, mindful approach and go, well, what if it, I see my fear, but what if? What if it's not true? What if there are other ways of seeing this? Um, if that could, if that, if it could serve that purpose for everybody, um, boy, that would be, that'd be a huge step for all of us. Shelley writes, I love being here for encouragement and hope. I stepped out in faith to have a private practice in 2015. It has been difficult navigating the hurdles at times. I hope to find those that will help me to work through my challenges. Um, yeah, Shelley, you know, um, I don't know if we've said it so far in the podcast. Um, maybe it's an oversight if we haven't, but, um, when you look up passion in the dictionary, um, one of the definitions is an extravagant fondness. So when I think of a passion, it's something that we are extravagantly fond of doing. And, um, and then there's another definition of passion. It comes from the Latin root. The Latin root of the word passion means to suffer. So you go, whoa, those are pretty different. <laughs> those are pretty different emotional experiences. Um, but when you put them together, they actually, I think, get it comprehensively what it's like to follow a passion. And that is um, to be so extravagantly fond of doing something that we are willing to suffer for it if necessary. Um, and uh, as a practice owner myself, um, I resonate with what you say. Um, it's not all fun and games. There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of suffering that, that goes with it. Um, it's why it's, it's so important that we're doing things we're extravagantly fond of doing because everything we do will come with some suffering and setbacks and trials and will test our patience and our trust in ourselves. So we have to, we, it's really important that we're also, we have things in our lives that we're extravagantly fond of doing as well. So Shelly, thank you for that. We're, many of us are in the same boat with you. And actually, um, that's one thing we'll be addressing more and more as we go through these months, um, is this, this idea of suffering. Um, that joy and suffering can sort of sit next to each other in the things that we do in life. In fact, that our passions might ultimately feel most purposeful when they are in some way redeeming our suffering, redeeming our pain. Um, and, uh, and, and so when, we, when, when our passions are redeeming existing pain within us, um, it makes us more resilient uh, to handle the suffering that pursuing those passions produces. So it's like we're exchanging old pain for, for new pain and uh, um, consciously doing so. Emily writes, can you repeat the part of this week's exercise where you put your objections in two categories? Yeah, here, here it is. Um, read the post above to them and explain that you are trying to see these chords in new ways. Then with your people, separate your practical objections into two categories. Number one, old ways of thinking about problems that don't really exist anymore. And number two, actual chords requiring creative solutions. So let me give you an example. Uh, you discover that you have a passion that you want to pursue, but the, the, the phone cord, the schema that sort of tethers you to your old way of living is this thought, but my, but my spouse won't support me in it, right? So now you go to, you go to your people, you go to a buddy, you go to a best friend, and you say, uh, this, this schema of mine is preventing me from pursuing my passion. And the schema is this, that my, my partner won't support me in pursuing it. There's two ways this could turn out. Um, through the wise counsel of the person you belong to, you might say, actually, that's an old schema. The, the people you grew up with wouldn't support you in the pursuing of your passions. They discouraged all of that. But your husband, your wife, they're 
they're on your side. They're your cheerleader. They'll, they'll support you. So there's actually not a problem there. Um, there's just a schema telling you that there is. Or um, through this dialogue and this discussion, you might discover that, yeah, actually my, my partner really will have a hard time with me pursuing my passion and I need to uh, figure out a creative way to deal with that. And maybe that creative way is some sort of couples counseling, um, maybe a certain way of engaging a dialogue about that with your partner, uh, maybe sitting down with your partner and working through all of their objections. Um, so it, it could go either way. Um, and we want to be clear, is this just an outdated way of thinking about it or is this an actual uh, sort of problem that requires an actual solution in my life right now? All right, everyone, thanks again for really just another thoughtful, vulnerable, courageous, brave, super helpful discussion. Next week, we're going to be focusing on another piece of resistance we face as we contemplate pursuing our passions. And this is a very specific belief. We're going to hone in on the belief that we need to be better, fixed, more whole, more ready before we can start. It'll be week 39 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled The Blessing of Being Unfinished. Until then, remember, you are lovable. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's dr kellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. Yeah.